Welcome to Wisdom, Love, and Beauty, a podcast for the soul and the home of dangerous wisdom. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, and today we continue our inquiry into the nature of magic. Last time we inquired a, a little further into Yeats's first principle of magic. That's the poet William Butler Yeats. And then we picked up the second principle. And I, I thought we would pick up the third principle this time. But something happened during the recording of the last contemplation that seemed synchronistic, and which then prompted some thinking that maybe we should inquire a little further into the second principle of magic, which has to do with memory, just to refresh our minds. The second principle of magic outlined by William Butler Yeats goes like this, that the borders of our memories are as shifting as the borders of our mind, and that our memories are part of one great memory, the memory of nature herself. Memory. Something happened as we spoke about memory last time. Maybe I should first acknowledge that as philosopher in residence at a wild horse sanctuary, I live in the barn. I live in the barn with the horses who need special attention. Now, horses belong in wide open spaces. Horses do not belong in barns or stalls unless medically necessary. The fact that humans keep huge numbers of horses in confinement without medical necessity gives yet another indication of how out of attunement with reality human beings have gotten and how we have all gotten locked into a pattern of insanity. For many people, there's no other choice. If they want to have their horse in their life, they have to keep their horse in confinement and that's the point we're locked. And for mo most everyone, especially in the dominant culture, there isn't really a way right now to live sustainably. And that's part of what we have to rethink. That's part of the magic that we have to employ. The magic of making a healthy and sane world for all beings. The horses here at this sanctuary get as much space as medically and logistically possible and a few of them do stay in the barn where I live when there is a special need. In the early hours, when I record these contemplations, the horses usually stay quiet. But at the end of the last contemplation, we concluded an inquiry into memory that involved some potentially strange phenomena. Among other things, we considered the possibility that the memory of trauma might somehow stay with us across generations, down through a lineage, in a culture, in a people, in a family, in a place. Magic teaches us that memory doesn't hide behind our skin, and that we ourselves are interwoven with nature. And so nature, too, carries our memories. She is our memory, including the memory of what our ancestors may have done in ignorance and what our friends and the wider community of life may have undergone. Given the long history of human and horse relationship, it seems potentially synchronistic, very much so, that as we tried to conclude that inquiry, 
touching as we did on trauma, one of the horses here began banging very loudly. It was unusual for that early hour, and after the recording stopped just a few minutes later, so did the banging. And as I say this, I think I hear that same horse. She'd usually be quiet about now. Occasional banging happens in a barn. It's not usually so loud, persistent, insistent, and you can hear it in the recording. You might have wondered what that sound was if you were listening, or you can go back. And the synchronicity here involves a few elements. For one, the day before recording that contemplation, I had been reading about the period of time when humans applied conquest consciousness directly to the wild horse herds here on Turtle Island. Powered by factories and machines and fueled by ignorance and greed, human beings put perhaps two million horses through mass slaughter for dog food and for meat that was sent to Europe. Millions of horses ended up in cans. In thinking about the extermination of horses, which is what it was, it was an extermination campaign as if they were vermin, when I thought about that, sound played a big part in the experience for me. We could try and imagine the way vast areas of Turtle Island once thundered with the powerful gallop of millions of horse hooves. And we can contrast that with the silence of their absence. None of us in this life, in this form, none of us will hear that thunder. It's a remarkable thing. And the soul may grieve the loss of that thunder the loss of those beings, their presence. We can only imagine the clamor of wild horses kicking at the walls of railroad cars as they traveled from western parts of Turtle Island to Chicago, where they would meet a brutal and undignified end. I thought a lot about the sounds of those horses. And so when the horse in the barn, who's a good friend of mine, when she began kicking so loudly, it immediately evoked this eerie memory of extermination and horses trapped in railway cars. My friend's name is Aragon, and she was once a wild horse. She's still wild. But she deals with the human world gently and intelligently. She's an incredible person. She does protest at gates of any kind. It's not, it's, it is a thing that she does, but again, not like this. This was unique. In fact, she sometimes tries to climb gates. Just yesterday morning when I went down to see her, she was standing on the, on the gate because she has to take turns being let out into the larger space with the other horses. And I really wondered if she could just get over that, that gate. It's amazing to see this horse standing as if she were trying to climb this gate and not quite sure how to get all the rest of the way over. Now, she herself is not sick, but her friend Rio is, and that's why she's in the barn. She stays close to him and attends to him, and it's really touching to see. In fact, once when I went to give Rio some medicine that he was taking at the time, Aragon tried her best to herd him to me because Rio is very skittish. 
and he naturally wanted to avoid me. He wa- he doesn't like to to be approached by people, by humans. And Aragon seemed to understand the whole situation. She seemed intent on getting him to stop moving away and instead to let me approach. She was clearly trying to help. And there have been many times when it was clear that Aragon knew what I was thinking. That's magic. The borders of her mind and the borders of my mind shifted. And we became liberated into a larger ecology of mind, a shared space of freedom and creativity and care, mutual care. Anyway, when she banged on that gate so loudly during the recording, it seemed to sound out the memory of her ancestors, and of human ancestors too. Again, I had been reading about the extermination of wild horses just the day before recording, and the weight of this event affects the karma of everyone in the dominant culture. I felt it all echo in the soul as Aragon banged away. A magical consciousness allows us to sense that Aragon banged on that gate when she did because that sound would ring out in my mind as a kind of memory, as a calling, as a reminder. The word mindfulness, that word that we use, has become common in the dominant culture. And it comes as a translation of the word sati. And that word in the original carries the connotation of memory, of remembering, remembering. Aragon sounded out a call to mindfulness. She was a mindfulness bell. My own lineage in this life didn't have much to do with hunting or even capturing wild horses. Cretans, Minoans, there are horses, people use horses, but it's not really as direct as it might be in some other cultures. But the thing is that all the Indo-European languages seem to descend from a group of people who lived in the Eurasian plains and hunted and then captured and enslaved horses. This could have been the very model of human slavery. Maybe that's where we got the idea. In other words, we enslaved the horse first, and once we had enslaved the horse, both the thought and the means of enslaving other human beings became much clearer. Horses make it possible to attack and dominate other human beings in new ways. Indeed, they make it possible to attack and dominate all sorts of beings, from sheep to trees. In thinking about the extermination of horses here on Turtle Island, we touch on much more than that, that sort of isolated thing, if we could isolate it, because their extermination goes together with the extermination of wolves and bison, for instance. And it stretches back to the extermination and even extinction of large species. In our distant past, it leads all the way to mass extinction of species that we see today. And it touches on the extermination of cultures, languages, tribes, nations, the extermination of the sacred, the fencing in of the sacred, conversion of sacred to private, property, profit, 
the extermination of wildness and wonder in countless ways. Related to all of this also is the fact that a day or so before that same recording, I made a serious but informal book proposal to, to the founder of this horse rescue, a book which I told her had a secret title. And I'll, I'll let you know the secret title. The secret title is How the Horse Can Save America. We wouldn't call it that, but it's a useful secret title. And what I mean by a title like that is How the Horse Can Heal Conquest Consciousness. Because what we call America is just the leading edge of that pattern of insanity. It has to do with healing something very deep and old. The horse represents a portal to all the insanity of the dominant culture, a portal to seeing it clearly and healing it, a portal to all this insanity of the dominant culture going back thousands of years. And the horse still touches on all the major issues right here in the present, issues like poverty, racism, capitalism, ecological breakdown. It's all there, just threads coming off of the horse, living connections. Speaking about horses in any serious way brings us into the territory of dangerous wisdom because the horse is dangerous wisdom embodied. Dangerous wisdom, love, and beauty walking around in a majestic and dignified form. Symbolically, archetypally, and in their very sacred presence, horses defy conquest consciousness. In fact, horses so profoundly defy conquest consciousness that even people who love horses get confused and nervous around them. People who love horses often ignore their own incoherence in relation to horses and to the world that horses invite us to discover and create. And even people who love horses participate in their continued oppression. We all have a responsibility for the karmic wounds of the past, the memory, the memory of what human beings have done to the horse, through the horse, with the horse, how we have used the horse to oppress, how we have used the horse for violence and aggression, and how we put violence and aggression onto the horse, into their very bodies and minds even now. And again, this includes people who proclaim love for horses currently, today. And I just wanted to say this much in honor of Aragon and her kin, all her ancestors, all her relations. And maybe it's worth adding an addendum to this contemplation that discusses some of these matters further. But Aragon's call to mindfulness didn't just bring horses to mind, it also brought mindfulness of further aspects of memory that just came with it. I began to think about other things that maybe would have been important to consider in relationship to memory. And in general, the, the call to mindfulness from Aragon seemed like a reminder that horses would love human beings to find magic again. 
not just to think about difficult things, because we do have to turn toward suffering. We do have to turn toward wounds, even in the shadow, even in the unconscious, and heal them. Otherwise, they stay with us. And so, yes, we have to look at the difficult things, that, but we also have to think about the positive things. How do we move forward? Well, understanding magic is one way to do it. And horses would love it if we could find the magic that we lost. Because the activity of transgressing against the sacred is the activity of losing magic. It's the same gesture. So in honor of Aragon and all other sentient beings who wish for us the discovery of magic, the realization of magic, let's think further about magic and memory. Because I began to think about some things that maybe it would be worth considering. And we can say first that if we want to understand our past, we can see it in the horse. If you want to understand your own memory, look at a horse. If we want to understand our future, we can see it in the horse. If we want to know the memory and the future of horses, we can look at the grass. If we want to know the memory and future of grass, we can look at horses. And we can look at humans, too. Horses are the memory of grass and of humans. Humans are the memory of horses and of grass. If we want to know the magic of horses, we can look at the grass because horses conjure the grass. If we want to know the magic of grass, we can look at horses because grasses conjure horses. Mind, memory, magic, they go together, totally. The interwovenness of these and the interwovenness of past, present, and future seems like a good place to continue our reflections. Now let's recall Yeats gives us a conceptual view of magic and concepts can cover over mysteries. They can cover them rather than revealing them. We could try to use concepts to open up our sensitivity to mysteries, but sometimes instead of doing that, we do the opposite. We think we have a conceptual understanding and we've covered over something. So consider those first two principles. They're two separated principles. First, that the borders of our minds are ever-shifting and that many minds can flow into one another, as it were, and create or reveal a single mind, a single energy. Second, that the borders of our memories are as shifting, and that our memories are part of one great memory, the memory of nature herself. Here Yeats makes a conceptual distinction that all of us habitually make. We tend to think of memory as its own sort of thing. But we might begin to think that we cannot have mind without memory. In other words, we have a habit of thinking of information on the one hand, and whatever that's supposed to mean, information on the one hand, and the use of information on the other. Storing the information is memory. We may even try to characterize memory, and we do this. We think of it. We relate to memory like it's storage and retrieval. I store something, then I try to, well, I, I go get it. I find it in there somewhere. Is memory storage? Is that what memory is? It seems to have problems as a 
basic concept. For instance, let's say we rent a storage unit. We all have familiarity with that in this culture. Even if you haven't done it yourself, you know what it's like. If there's TV shows about these storage units. So we put some books in a storage unit, and one day we need those books. So we go retrieve them. So storage and retrieval means we put the books in there, and then we went and got them. Let's make that clearer. Imagine a full-service storage facility. We don't have to do the storing. We just hand over our stuff, and the people there promise to secure it, keep it safe, and then retrieve whatever we want whenever we want it. So we take our books there. We come back a month later, and we say to the person, please get the complete dialogues of Plato for me. Now, if the person comes back with a slip of paper that has the words complete dialogues of Plato written on it, that, just that sentence, they hand us that slip of paper, and we look at it, see the words complete dialogues of Plato, we think there, there's something going on here. Because I, need, I stored the books and I asked them to retrieve the books. They can't retrieve a slip of paper. They have to bring me the book. When you try and remember your mother's face, do you re retrieve a face? Did you store a face? Let's say someone has breakfast, and they eat sourdough bread with olive oil and honey, and they drink a cup of tea with it. If we ask them what they had for breakfast, they'll tell us sourdough bread with olive oil and honey and a cup of tea. They do not reproduce the food for us, thankfully. <laughs> so, I mean, because that could go a couple of different ways, right? But they don't do that. If they were strictly an input-output machine, if memory were, strictly speaking, storage and retrieval, they would need to have been fed the sentence, sourdough bread with olive oil and honey and a cup of tea, in order to properly retrieve that sentence from storage. But the person we're thinking of didn't eat a sentence, in fact, they didn't even look at the words. They just pulled out some bread, put some olive oil and honey on it. They ate it. They drank a cup of tea. There weren't any words that they consumed, that they put into themselves. Memory doesn't retrieve the food itself, nor does it retrieve words. Rather, the person tells us what they ate. What we're trying to get at here is that if the mind functions holistically, then even though we could find cases of damage to our bodies that create rather specific problems in our functioning, we don't necessarily have some specialized faculty for memory. Like there's a storage place, and then there's the rest of what we do with our mind, you know? Like here's the place where we perceive things, here's the place where we remember, here's the place where we ride a bike. Mind and memory go totally together more maybe closer to the holographic theory of mind or something like that, but certainly some kind of holistic theory. If we could remember absolutely nothing at all, we wouldn't have a mind. And it's not that the mind then is in conjunction with some memory function, but that what we call mind and memory arises interwoven. And this can help us understand another potentially conceptually misleading notion, namely that the body stores memory or that the body carries trauma. On the one hand, that can seem incredibly helpful to think about. 
On the other hand, we're just moving things around without recognizing that all attempts at localization ultimately fail. Magic involves the skillful recognition of the non-locality of mind, including memory. We can just as easily say that trauma is stored in the culture at large, in the collective conscious and unconscious, and in nature too. The horse carries our trauma, and people actively put their ignorance and suffering into the bodies of horses and countless other beings. Conceptually, we could speak about perception, and we could think of it as the present. Perception is what you presently experience. We can speak about memory and think of it as the past. And we can speak about inference and think of it as the future. Again, we might find some specialized mechanisms that facilitate those, we, we could loosely say faculties, but our thinking about them, if it veers into localizing them, veers into error. They only make sense in the context of a holistic, dynamic ecology of mind. Only a whole process, an ecology of mind, and maybe nesting, ecologies of mind, interwoven ecologies of mind, only those have the capacity to think, to sing, to play, to hear stories, to arrive at insights, to heal and transform. Where we draw the borders of these ecologies depends on philosophical assumptions, not on real gaps or joints we ever will find in reality. In terms of our experience, the way we experience, the philosopher Edmund Husserl noticed that the interwovenness of past, present, and future when he examined the experience of listening to music. If we think about something like listening to a song we love, we can recognize, first of all, that we don't stay in the present moment, as if the present moment could exist cut off from past and future. Not in our sort of ordinary habitual mind. If we could only hear the present note, we couldn't perceive a melody. We would just hear a series of notes. But when we listen to a song, we experience it as a song, not as a series of notes. We don't experience a series of now moments. The present note comes totally interwoven with the notes just played and also with our sense of the notes about to come. That's obviously how we experience things like syncopation and surprise in music, that we're participating in, in a future as well. But that future and that past are integral to any listening experience. Human beings can speak conceptually about not having expectations, for instance. But without the interwovenness of the future in the now, we wouldn't have our ordinary experience at all. So the notion of being free from expectations, in, in all likelihood, almost everyone who speaks about not having expectations in this or that situation, that same person probably has many unconscious expectations and merely deludes themselves. But it's become a commonplace where people say, well, I, I went in with no expectations, doubtful. How could you have navigated the situation 
How did you take one step after the other? We expect the ground to be solid when we step. Even just that basic notion. But again, in the song of our lives, we experience song, not a series of now notes. Just a note, just a note, just a note. Incoherent. The philosopher Derrida used this analysis as the basis of a critique of our habitual mind the habitual mind of the dominant culture. Husserl himself didn't seem to acknowledge the full weight of his own analysis. He had this wonderful analysis of internal time consciousness. And then Derrida read this, Jacques Derrida, the famous French philosopher, and he said, wow, that's kind of more significant than maybe Husserl realized. And Derrida essentially said that Husserl's analysis shows there is no present independent of past and future. If we try and find the now, we can't find it independently of past and future. When we speak of the so-called power of now, we may have lofty notions in mind, but if we were a little more honest, a little more humble, we might realize we're simply speaking about the power of a different way of relating to past and future. We did note in our last contemplation that the mystics speak of a fourth time. They had noticed all of this complexity and interwovenness long before Husserl and Derrida came around. And they noticed much more because Husserl and Derrida give no indication of experiencing a fourth time, something beyond the cycle of past, present, future. Entrance into the fourth time would also alter our experience of past, present, and future. Entrance into the fourth time may bring us to the realization of time as an illusion. might see time as illusory in some important sense, and we touched a little on this in the previous contemplation. The letter from Einstein, for instance, and also in other ways like that experience of the remote viewing experiment. And there was one of the things that we didn't mention suddenly seemed worth considering because it pushes directly again on our habitual notions and it falls a little bit more clearly into the realm of magical. It's maybe a little more akin to that remote viewing experiment. But let's start with something a bit unmagical in some sense. Everything about our mind involves a measure of magic, but some of it can seem mundane. So let's look at something mundane. In the literature of cognitive science and psychology, we can find a common experimental protocol called priming. Priming became something of a cottage industry, you could say. A bunch of scientists who need funding and tenure and, you know, Here's a reliable thing we can all do, and it's interesting, and it allows experimenters to test causal hypotheses in cases that might otherwise only yield correlation. Correlation is important in science, but boy, if you've got a causal thing, whoa, that's really exciting. Now, what, let me try to clarify that. Uh, researchers, for instance, could run experiments that show general differences in thought and perception between cultures, say people in China and people from the U.S., we could find correlations in their thinking and certain kind of tendencies in the thought patterns of people from China and tendencies in the thought patterns 
of people from the U.S., and we could notice like this relational difference. But we don't get any causal thing necessarily. We just say, wow, it seems like there's these, there are these patterns. Is there any way we could provoke a causal mechanism? Now, if we have a group of people who live sufficiently long in both China and the U.S., maybe they were born in China, lived there for four or five years, and then moved to the United States and then spent the rest of their life here, then the experimenters could manipulate their perception and their thought pattern by first priming them. Now, what does that mean? It's been a long time since anyone had to prime a pump. That's where the expression comes from. We don't really do that anymore. But a researcher could, for instance, show you have a person, again, who had deep exposure to both Chinese and U.S. culture, and then we're going to see how we can uh, kind of prime their way of thinking and perceiving. First, we would show one group of subjects images of the Statue of Liberty, the, the Liberty Bell, and other sorts of American cultural artifacts, flag, whatever. And then to the other group, they might show images of the Great Wall of China and other very iconic Chinese images, cultural artifacts. And what that does is it provides an experimental variable. These images allow the priming to happen, and then we get a different result. And what happens is that when we prime these people who both have experience with both cultures, with the two cultures, when you prime with the Chinese images, you get a more Chinese style of thought and perception. And if you had primed with the American images, you would have gotten a more American style of thought and perception. So now it's very interesting. It means that there are just, just two styles of thought and perception available to the same person, and how we prime them will change the way they perceive and think. So it's sort of interesting. But that's the more mundane thing. We, we have um, interest in another kind of priming experiment, and this one involves having people sit in front of a computer, same concept of priming, but I'll describe how this one works. They're going to look at a series of images. So you can imagine you were asked to participate, and we sit you down in front of a computer. We say, okay, we're going to show some images here, and you're going to just quickly rate them as either positive or negative. And so maybe there's a keyboard there, and you press maybe the left shift key if it's negative and the right shift key if it's positive. And you just keep your fingers resting on those shift keys, and here comes the images. And the images come from these standard collections of images. And what the researchers do is they gather up a bunch of images and they test people again and again and again and ask them, what, how, how would you rate this image? How would you rate this image? And they reliably know that, for instance, if we have an image of fresh fruit or ice cream, that every, almost everybody's going to say it's positive. You might get the occasional person who thinks, fruit, yuck, that's gross. I don't want to see a picture of luscious fr fruit. But most everybody will... And so you can control for that. You can correct for the occasional crazy person. Or, you know, I don't mean it that way. But, you know, someone who's just a little bit atypical, not neurotypical, has just an interesting life experience or something with fruit and, and you know, or maybe just is rebellious. But the point is that if a person's being honest, we have scientists have established these banks of images where they can reliably know how a person will rate the image. Is it positive or negative? 
Now the priming part, that's just here we're going to show you images and you're going to rate them. Then there's the priming part. How do they prime the person? Well, before they put the image, they'll flash a word on the screen. Now let's say that they flash the word luscious or the word bitter. And so just like the images, the words come from a standardized collection and the experimenters know that speakers of English find bitter or ugly as a negative valence term. Bitter is that's kind of a negative thing and uh, beautiful or luscious is a positive thing. The priming of the word affects how the people rate the images and it's all very predictable. So just follow me here. This is important. There's a payoff. I know it's weird to talk about some crazy cognitive science experiment in detail like this, but I'm trying to help you to picture it. You'll get a word flashed on a screen and then an image, and you'll be asked to rate the image. Now, if you see the word bitter and then a picture of fresh fruit appears, it turns out it takes just a little longer to rate the image compared to seeing the word luscious and then seeing that same picture of fruit. You see what I'm saying there? When the word aligns with the image, we react faster because we've been primed. Luscious, and then picture of fruit. Oh, yeah, that's positive. Bitter, and then a picture of fruit. We kind of hesitate because we just saw the word bitter. Our mind got primed to bitterness, so to speak. Then there's an image of fruit, and we have to get like out of that bitter priming and shift over. Which is, you know, part of the whole mindset nonsense, which we won't go into. Uh, import, very important to critique, but you can see why the mindset people can make money off of mindset coaching. Because there, there are these truths to it. It's fragmented. But let's go over this protocol in its basic sequential form. Just one more time, so we're, we're clear. You're sitting in front of a computer, there's a monitor and a keyboard, and you know that you're supposed to quickly evaluate a series of images, just the images, as either positive or negative. That's it. You just press a button. It's positive or it's negative. Before each image appears, a word flashes on the screen. You do nothing. You just, there's the word. It flashes. Then after the word flashes, the image appears, and you quickly rate the image as either positive or negative. Then you do this again and again and again. And the reaction time is faster when the word and the image have the same valence. You have the same, if they're both positive, you're fast. If it's a, a, a negative word and a positive image, or if it's a positive word and a negative image, you're, you just slow down. Now, I know this sounds crazy, but I'm just, just to make sure that we understand this protocol, just bear with me, we're going to do an illogical version of it. Just think of this. You're sitting, this is very important to understand this illogical version. So you're sitting in front of a computer, there's a monitor and a keyboard, you know you're going to see a series of images and you're going to quickly evaluate them as either positive or negative. An image appears. You quickly rate that image. After you have seen the image and then after you rated it, now a word flashes on the screen. You sit there and do nothing. And then, after a period of time, the next trial begins. An image appears, you rate it, a word appears, you don't do anything, and you go on to the next one. So remember, the word is supposed to prime you. 
So you do understand if you, if you think to yourself, well, wait, that doesn't make sense anymore. That's right. If the word is the primer, it has to come first in order to alter the experiment, right? Because if the image of the fruit appears, and I know that it's positive, I just say it's positive. But if the word bitter came before I saw the fruit, then that slows me down for a second, right? It primed me. If you show me the image of the fruit, and then I rate it, and then you try to prime me afterwards, but that was stupid. That doesn't have anything to do with the priming, right? Now, I'm not trying to belabor this. There's a point to this. It's just that for us to have this mutual understanding that it makes no sense to put the priming word after we have people view and rate the image because it can't then have the causal influence on their rating. If I rate the image before you try to influence how I rate it, then whatever you do to influence me shouldn't have any effect. Right? Okay. Now, here's the funny thing is that even though that second version of the experiment is totally illogical, and we, we can agree on that, it was in fact attempted, for instance, in 2011 by a researcher named Daryl Bem. The results should strike us as surprising. So these participants, who were being primed after they already rated the image, they responded significantly faster on the congruent trials than the incongruent ones. In other words, there was indeed a significant priming effect. That's a remarkable thing. Now, how significant was this? Scientists indicate experimental significance by what they call a p-value, and p is the kind of probability value. And what it's supposed to indicate is, what are the odds that what we found here was just chance? You know, this isn't a real, a real significant effect. It just like, it, it happened. It was a statistical fluke, people sometimes say. So typically, a p-value of 0.05 represents a sort of threshold of significance, and people don't like to publish a result without at least that. So scientists tend to think they need the assurance that a result has only a 5% chance of being a coincidence and a 95% chance of being a reliable phenomenon or else they won't even bother publishing. But they prefer a higher value. A p-value of 0.01 clearly indicates a higher degree of significance and it's preferable. It means 99% chance you have a reliable phenomenon here and only a 1% chance that this is some kind of statistical fluke. Now how about this experiment by Ben? In this case, the p-value was less than 0.00001. This means that statistical odds run clearly against finding any consistent difference in reaction time for such an illogical protocol because it doesn't make any sense. Let's see if we can allow this finding to, to sink in. The experiment was conducted by a serious researcher at Cornell under standardized protocols. The participants rated the image first, and only after they had done so did the priming word flash on the screen, at which point it should have no influence since the rating took place before the word was revealed. It should be abundantly clear why no one who understands the correct protocol would 
would bother even running such an illogical version, let alone would anyone expect to find a statistically significant difference. I mean, check your own intuitions. If you understood the priming phenomenon that we considered, would you yourself have considered running the illogical version of the protocol? I mean, even if you, for some strange reason, you say, well, I don't find this result very astonishing. I believe in this kind of magic. Even if you say that, would you really have stopped your work in the cottage industry of priming studies to run a protocol that makes no sense from the standpoint of the priming effect? That's a different kind of question. It has less to do with our professed beliefs and more to do with how we live, how we actually think in practice. Seems we need to slow down here because this example presents some significant challenges to our typical ways of thinking. In some sense, all the examples that we have considered in this series and even in other series, we talk about things that do challenge us because duality has deep roots in our thinking, so deep that any perceived threat to a duality we covet will provoke us in ways that make it difficult to remain open, to keep an open but discerning mind. And in a way, what we've considered is why a threat to duality feels like a threat to our identity. That's part of the contemplation of magic. Maybe it's a way deep down sort of feeling. It has an unconscious dimension. If we look carefully, we may find our reaction against challenges to dualities rather sensitive at first. Even if, we, again, we might profess openness, but really the existential deep part of us that's hiding behind our skin, it, it gets sensitive, provoked, and we may want to ask about that sensitivity itself. What's at stake? Now, you may have heard of this notion of a paradigm shift that comes from this philosopher of science, historian of science, Thomas Kuhn. And he would say that we, we are looking here at anomalies, anomalous da data. And that this kind of anomalous data, it serves as a kind of harbinger. It's letting us know a paradigm shift might be on the horizon. And that's valuable to think about. But we could have a shift in our science and it might still leave something else intact. You could say a deeper core paradigm, the basic paradigm of dualistic thinking. All the other paradigms we have, our scientific, religious, philosophical, artistic paradigms, they rest on top of this core paradigm. The findings from this experimental setup that we're talking about, they challenge several dualities at once, we could say. They challenge the duality between conscious and not conscious cause and effect, before and after, known and unknown, possible and impossible, memory and expectation. In other words, past and future, or past, present and future, as a pattern that gets disrupted, challenged. 
does this experimental setup provide evidence of a problem in our understanding of time? Does it present a problem in our understanding of memory? Is it a problem with our understanding of what it means to be able to know something or to be able to act on the basis of so-called information that could not be conscious in any ordinary sense? The people were being primed and they couldn't, they had no conscious access to the fact that they were being primed. I mean, even in an ordinary experiment, people might not have any sense that they're being primed. But here, for sure that you didn't have a sense of it because the word came after you did the activity. So you engaged in an activity which you thought you did independently. This is me. Look at me doing this activity. I've done it. I've rated the image. And meanwhile, something from the future just influenced you. Apparently, again, was it the future? Was it a memory? Is time an illusion? To do something right now in the moment, think of how astonishing that is, where you think I'm doing this, I'm free, and you may be influenced by a future that you cannot perceive. It's not conscious. And yet it's going to come and it's going to influence you. Whoa. And we can consider the sweeping nature of some of these dualities we just mentioned. For instance, conscious and not conscious. Think how sweeping a duality that is. We could allow conscious, whatever that word means to us, let's let it mean phenomenological experience, just experience, our self-awareness, just intuitive, you know? What are you conscious of? You're conscious now, right? And not conscious is everything else, everything else. That's a huge sweeping duality. In some sense, it's everything else in the cosmos. Right now, you're not conscious of what's happening on the moon. You might not be conscious of the sun if you're inside until I mentioned the sun. The sun was just completely not even in your register. And now you're only conscious of the word or the memory of the sun. Right? Or is there more going on? Sometimes we make the duality on the basis of our own consciousness and we think of it first in terms of what we have conscious access to and what we don't. We may acknowledge other beings as conscious, and we may insist that the contents of their consciousness remain from our perspective not conscious. Right? That's, Yeats is saying the opposite, but conscious means what I'm conscious of, and I'm not conscious of what you're conscious of, right? You have your consciousness, I have mine. Are you conscious of what I'm conscious of right now? Ask yourself. Does my consciousness influence you? Now, in this case, the experimenters and the people participating had no idea what was going to happen. It was all being done by a computer. It was random. There was no conscious influence in that sense of a mind consciousness, you know. The computer... That was part of the not conscious. The chair we sit on, the floor, the walls, all of this is not conscious in, an, in some important way. You understand how there's, there's these two senses. There's what I have access to in my consciousness is all conscious, and then what I don't have access to, it might be my own mind, but it's still unconscious. And then there might be things that I think of as not conscious. Like I don't think the computer's conscious or the algorithm that'll choose the word or the image in the experiment. The chair isn't conscious. That's often how we relate to the world. And we often relate not conscious 
with not living, not valuable, not able to communicate, or some other kind of notion? Are horses conscious? Do we respect their awareness, their memory, their perception? Do we really respect a horse's memory and perception? I mean, we sit down in a conversation, we want somebody to respect our memory of what happened to us today. We need to talk about it. And yes, horses don't necessarily need to sit around and talk about it. But do we revere their memory? Are horses part of our ecology of mind? Not just that we can think about horses, and not even the claim that the horses can guide us. There's a lot of that in the equine world. I listen to the horses. It's not clear that people really are coherent when they're talking about it, let alone doing it. Are horses and planes, and we might think of them as going together, like this whole cycle of plankton and whale, horses and planes, like that's as if that's one thing. Are horses and planes part of our way of knowing and being, living and loving? Are rivers really part of our ecologies of mind? Or are rivers unconscious? Is it that we can go to the river and feel nice? Are mountains part of our ecology of mind? Do we allow mountain thinking? How about our own bones? Our bones are made of minerals like a mountain is. Our blood has iron in it. We're mostly water. River water, rain water. Our bones are not conscious, are they? Many of our our very own biological processes, what we call biological processes, don't count as conscious for us, really. And we may not even think of them as sentient. You see, those are two different things. When you there's a cut on your finger, you don't consciously sit there and heal it. You might think there's a sentience or a wisdom in the body or an intelligence that does it. Is it conscious? The activity of neurons in our brain. We have this fluid shifting of synapses, this dance going on all the time. You, if you could look at your neurons, it would be like this active dance going on, a release and reuptake of neurotransmitters, a steady work of ion pumps, dendrites shifting around. All this activity isn't conscious to us. Since the beginning of this podcast, and if you've listened to it over time, your neurons have gotten attuned to my voice. You've been primed to hear this voice and to begin to think more philosophically, more ecologically. That's happening. But did you, did you feel the shift after you finish this podcast where you say, bah, my neurons definitely feel like they've been rearranged. I can tell you that. Those ion pumps were really working. I need, boy, I need a cup of tea. All those ion pumps, all those neurotransmitters, whoo. Even if we tried to localize thinking in the skull, we don't have activity, uh, conscious access, pardon me, to what's going on there. We don't typically experience an awareness of unconscious processes that might work on a problem for days. We just get an insight. We may know that we're kind of obsessing about it or concerned about it, but sometimes we forget about something altogether and then the insight comes. And we don't consciously experience all the ways our culture shapes our thought and perception. 
We just perceive. We just call it perception. I see, I think, is what we say. And yet those perceptual priming experiments we talked about previously, they can detect differences in perception that we may not ourselves experience consciously. Sometimes we do, but certainly aspects of it are completely unconscious. And we may not realize when, we're been, when we've been primed to see it one way or another. We just think we're seeing it. We can find countless examples and exceptions, but the basic notion holds. And it holds with respect to key aspects of our neuroses and psychological complexes. Though we sometimes pretend we can ignore or bracket them. In all of this not conscious stuff, <laughs> which is vast, somewhere in it, somehow in it, there arises something like an awareness of, a sensitivity to, or relationship with the congruency or incongruency of the image-word pairs. So we're speaking from the standpoint of participating in an experiment like that. There's this vast unconscious stuff going on, and somehow some part of us touches the congruency or incongruency of these image-word pairs, even though the word is still in the future. Now, we're critical thinkers. Come on. We don't want to just take this hook, line, and sinker, this crazy experiment, some guy at Cornell, who does he think he is? Now, it's funny, in one sense, there's nothing actually illogical about the setup we described. It gets its strangeness on the basis of dualities that we take for granted. Isn't that really where the illogic comes from? I mean, it's just a, if we give the illogical sequence where I, I, I just, if I were to read that on a piece of paper, okay, so there's a person sitting there and they're going to rate images. Okay, then an image comes, then they rate it, and then for some reason you flash a word on a screen, okay, and then they don't do anything, and then there's the next trial. It may seem strange to be flashing the word, but it's, it's not overtly illogical until we start to check in on some of our other premises about what the nature of reality is. Even our hypotheses about how to explain the results will typically end up using the same dualities. And one reason for that is that the language seduces us into it, and our language has, the, has it built in. We just talked about this. Dominant culture all comes from a bunch of horse rustlers, horse killers, horse enslavers, the whole Indo-European language family, all descending from, <laughs> from these people. Okay, so, but let's, let's say that we want to be critical, and we first of all say, this might be a statistical fluke. Okay, fine, it sounded like they had uh, significance there. Now, uh, many rational people could write up a good argument against buying lottery tickets with the same odds that they found in this experiment, because, you know, this experiment would be like a very big lottery win. However, a person could say that. Well, it's highly unlikely but it's not impossible. People do win the lottery, and he, this guy just won the lottery. I mean, it's not a real finding. You see what I'm saying? We could try to write it off if we're skeptics, and people try to do this all the time. Bem's paper, though, reports 
findings not from one experiment, but nine experiments involving over a thousand participants. So he didn't just do this, you know, oh, hey, let's get five people in here. Oh, look, we found something. Isn't that crazy? No. It's a very detailed thing. He was really being careful, serious scientist. Mossbridge and colleagues published a paper the year before that analyzed 26 experiments that were like BEMS, conducted by various researchers over several decades. This is what's called a meta-analysis. And they analyzed the data using two models. So again, if you thought this was just a fluke, Bem himself performed the experiment nine times. Mossbridge, the prior year, had done a meta-analysis looking at 26 experiments conducted over decades. And in the first model, when they were doing their analysis, they assumed that there is something like a true effect size for these results, and that the various experiments represent a sampling around that true effect size as a mean because they got different, of course, it's 26 experiments, you have slightly different results. In a second model, they assumed that the effect size varied across the experiments. Now, why did they do that? They did that in order to have a more conservative estimate of the significance, the probability of this, you know, is this a fluke, and a more liberal. So what's the conservative estimate? You know, like, what are the odds that all these experiments would have gotten, the 26 that they analyzed, would have gotten their results merely by chance. And they're trying to be as conservative as possible. That is, let's, let's try to really, well, what would it be if this really were a lottery win? And let's be as generous to skepticism as we can. And what did they find? The p-value was 0. 0.00000000027. You do not want to bet against those odds. I don't, I don't even know if the Higgs boson discovery met that level of statistical significance. Isn't that incredible? Now, we can make a distinction here between significance and effect size. I use those two words. Finding significance in an experiment means eliminating the possibility of what scientists call a type 1 error. What does that mean? What's type 1? Type 1 is you think you found something, but you didn't. So the first question is, did we really find something, or was it just a fluke? That's a type 1 error, if you say you found something, and it wasn't really there. So the odds that Mossbridge found overwhelmingly indicate that these scientists found something. <laughs> they found something for sure. And once we have found something, we can ask another question. Well, how pronounced is what we found? And the phrase effect size is used to answer that question. It gives a statistical indication of the extent or intensity of the effect we found. Now, it shouldn't really surprise us to discover a small effect size here. Otherwise, we would experience these sorts of phenomena all the time. You know, if it were pronounced and not a statistical fluke, it would just be like, whoa, how did that happen? And of course, we have moments like that in our lives pretty frequently. Some more than others. But in general, these phenomena seem subtle and not really loud and obvious at least to us in the dominant culture. This could be a function of style of consciousness. Mossbridge and 
her group found an effect size of 0.21 for both the models that they used, and BEM found an effect size of 0.22 across all nine experiments. And that's pretty modest. The effect size scale often gets broken up like this. 0.2 is small, 0.5 is moderate, and 0.8 is large. And all of those numbers are fractions of what is called a standard deviation. That's a deviation from normal mental activity. That's all, it might all be complicated, you don't have to worry about it, but... So it's not clear why the effect size is consistently small, and that's the only point. You, the take home here is, well, it's, it, they, what they found is really significant, hugely significant. No, it, it would be ridiculous to just think it's, this was chance, especially considered with lots of other phenomena, which we could view as magical. Magic's real, that's it. But the effect size is often very small, subtle, like, wow, it's happening but it seems subtle in a lot of cases. Now, Bem, when he did his analysis, he found that an aspect of the so-called big five personality, there's these big five traits of personality, and one of them is extroversion. And extroversion has an aspect called stimulus seeking. So a person might, it, it, the way their extroversion might be is they might just like to seek sensation and stimulation and things like this. And Bem found that if you just looked at people who scored high in stimulus-seeking, the effect size went to 0.43. That's pretty significant. Now, whether the effect size is 0.21 or 0.43, it would provide enough of an edge to run a casino. And unless you are one of our ex-presidents, uh, you're not going to run a casino without making money. I mean, if you, if you know what you're doing, it's not hard to make money on a casino. We don't contemplate this example with the thought that a single experiment will overturn our notions of duality and locality. That's, okay, that would be kind of, I understand, if, especially if you're skeptical, you're not suddenly converted to a philosophy of non-duality and non-locality. We make a duality between human and nature, between mind and nature, between here and there, now and then. We conceptually separate the present from the past and the future. Even nice spiritual people do this because they're into the power of now and not necessarily seeing how their own experience is structured. Now we consider this experiment as an example of magic and in particular as an illustration that mind and memory are not localized and do not necessarily depend on our conceptual notion of time unsurprising to say something like that, that, you know, the reality of mind and memory don't depend on our beliefs. Mind and memory and expectation, past, present, and future, past, present, and future, they arise as interwoven. And it seems important to acknowledge that our culture should make us feel puzzled about this experiment. You know, if we're not consciously puzzled, it's important to look deeper at the ways in which we've been infected by conquest consciousness and we might carry unconscious questions and hesitations and reactions about something like this. Because of the barriers that we create, we put some rather hard edges into our world, edges we treat as given. When we find ourselves bumping up against something of this sort, some kind of edge, we might want to ask if the edges come from dualities that we projected onto the world solid things, reification, that's what the word is, thingification, where we made something solid that's not solid. 
And it's just important to recognize that some of us know that an experiment like this is not possible because we have developed a total image of humanity and the world. And even if we find the experiment sensible in a certain way or we find it possible, we believe in it, so to speak, we still live in a culture that has infected us with images that tell parts of us, which might not be conscious, that this experiment can't work. We just want to admit that we aren't fully coherent and congruent. If you're enlightened, and so you are totally, fully coherent and congruent, then you won't take offense at this suggestion because you're enlightened. But unless you think you're fully enlightened, then all of us on this side of being totally enlightened and liberated and Buddhas or saints or whatever we want to call it, we have an unconscious. And some of its energies and patterns arise from the confusions of the dominant culture as well as our own ignorance. Patterns in our own psyche arise from the memory of what our ancestors did in this place, here, Turtle Island, or wherever you are. This side of sagehood, all of us actively misknow our reality, and thankfully reality keeps poking in on us. Sophia is always whispering, tapping us on the shoulder. Sometimes she grabs us by the scruff of our neck because we haven't listened. Now, even contemplating an experiment like this, we can't, we're not going to say the matter is settled, but we can't say it falls into some obvious category of suspicion, aside from the fact that the result itself pushes against our notions of what should be possible. This experimental setup, and this is important, this experimental setup seems to indicate that our relationship to the world is not what we think it is, not what it appears to be. Because again, in your activity right now, you aren't sensitive to the immediate future influencing that activity. And you might think, oh, I can be here, right? I can be very present right here and now. And a person in that experiment might be very present. I'm just going to look at the image and rate it. That they're very present. The effect size might have been stronger, for instance, if the people had been trained in meditation. Something arises in our relationship to ourselves and our world which we don't seem to have full awareness of, full consciousness of. We could say that our culture, the dominant culture, teaches us ways of thought, perception, and expectation that obscure, delicate, and subtle aspects of reality, which despite their subtlety, nevertheless matter a great deal. That's key magical and ecological insight. This whole ecological catastrophe is revealed right there. We move from this weird experiment to, ah, that's why we have an ecological catastrophe. That's why we aren't eco-literate. That's the meaning of eco-literacy. Not knowing how to recycle or something, but more significant Subtle relations. We do not, in this culture, seem to remember, perceive, and think with the subtle interwovenness, the subtle interdependencies in our larger ecology of mind. And so we trample 
on those interdependencies. And our ecologies break down because they were dependent on those interdependencies which we trample. And that means we ourselves break down. We become less alive and alive. We become less healthy and connected. We feel cut off from the deeper flow of meaning and significance. We become possessive, aggressive, violent, confused, afraid, reactive, clingy, and so on. We stop living magically and we get totally locked into doing our lives and pursuing our agendas. We can define magic as the art of cultivating awareness of the delicate interdependencies of the larger ecology of mind. That's how we could define it that way. Magic is the art of cultivating awareness, skillful awareness, of the subtle and delicate interdependencies of larger ecologies of mind. Magic has to do with cultivating and attuning, cultivating in a good sense. There's a weird sense in which cultivating means get rid of the wildness. Here we're talking about practicing wildness. Good old Gary Snyder, the practice of the wild. And so we wouldn't call it stimulus seeking. There, Ben is a kind of typical Western researcher, but what about sensitivity? and interest and engagement, participation. We become sensitive in our activity and our perception, in our thinking and being and living and loving. We want to engage. We feel the aliveness of our connection. We begin to allow memory and possibility to arise together. We begin to connect to sacred powers and inconceivable causes. Sacred powers and inconceivable causes. We see those at work in Bem's experiment. Because in normal priming, we find a cause and effect relationship in the linear sense. It's cause and effect. The priming word causes something to happen. First comes the word, which serves as a cause. Then comes the effect a change in our reaction to the image. In Bem's version of the experiment, we have some kind of nonlinear relationship, an inconceivable cause. We might know or suspect that we have no firm ground to say, well, this finding is absolutely not true or accurate. It is absolutely not true that we could be sensitive to and thus, in some sense, know about some relationship between the image and the word if we haven't seen the word. And that just shouldn't be a surprising reaction. Once we sense that some part of us is unconscious and that sacred powers and inconceivable causes live themselves through us, then we have lost the boundary of the self we were clinging to. We don't know where we begin and end. We can't ground ourselves in linear time, linear cause and effect. We can't hide behind our own skin, hide in our stories about ourselves, hide in a location and a time. And all the self-help industry loves to get us to tell a better story about ourselves, just a better skin to hide behind, 
we might feel the temptation to try to recover ourselves by saying, well, even if such an experiment does stand up to my scrutiny, this unconscious element is still inside me. There's, there are people who would say that, and there's a part of us, again, if, if we, unless we've been liberated completely from the delusion of self-centeredness, some part of us wants to cling to that notion. So we have considered the rigorous scientific view of mind in which mind arises in, through, as relationality. It's non-localizable. And the old idea that still has us, it still has us, involves dualities. For instance, between subject and object, inside and outside. People like to say that, I go inside. I, I, inner guidance, I seek the inner guidance. We make duality between thinking and not thinking, conscious and not conscious, memory and perception, past, present, and future. The old, I think, therefore I am, attaches to a conscious thought. And this might dissolve under analysis in such a way that we would say, I think, therefore I am not. Because we might find the process of thinking, that we, what we would call thinking, process of thought covers over something else, something not so dualistic as self and other. In an experiment like this, we can have a clear and distinct idea of fruit and its positive valence. Clear and distinct idea. There it is. It's fruit. It's clear. You can see it. You can perceive it. There's the image of the fruit. It's clear. This is what I can think. This is what I can know. This is what I am. And it just unconsciously draws boundaries around things. Now, some non-dual traditions offer practices for dissolving these boundaries in a way that does not lead to chaos but to liberation. We could begin to dissolve this I think and I know and I do, and see beyond the dualities we take as real. We can find another kind of empirical support for this suggestion, another way to see how dualities function in us, while perhaps making space in our minds for the possibilities of this thing we may eventually call a non-dual dance. Scientists have established empirical support for a set of antagonistic brain networks. Now we're going back to the brain I know, but that we have to try to draw from what the dominant culture of science offers us so that we can be at least empirical in the science that we have, even if we need better science. So in the brain networks, the scientists have found in intrinsic and extrins uh, extrinsic relatedness. Sorry for the <laughs> choppy words. Intrinsic relatedness and extrinsic relatedness. That is to say, going inward and relating to the outside world. And you may have read James Austin, Zen in the Brain, he's written several books, and he referred to these himself, he calls them egocentric and allocentric pathways. That's fine too. If we engage with the world in a manner anchored in our own perspective, we activate egocentric pathways. So we might be sitting on a bench outside or sitting on the grass, that's nice, and we get lost in our thoughts. And the brain makes use of egocentric pathways as we do that. We're, in, we're inside there, and the outside world falls away. And then a bird might land, 
and we might hear the little flutter of the wings, and maybe she even sings a little, kind of call us out of this mind-wandering that we might be doing. Maybe it's nice mind-wandering, but she just calls us back to the world, and we stop thinking for a moment, and we look at the bird. As we first notice, her relationship to us, for instance, her proximity, how close she is, and we see her kind of from our perspective, we're still really in an egocentric mode. But it maybe got a little bit lightened or loosened. And as we begin to see the bird in relation to the rest of the world, and even begin to sense more from her perspective or to just get out of our own self-centered perspective in general as we relate, if relationality, instead of me relating to her, the bird, but just relationality begins to dance, we get into the allocentric pathway and the egocentric pathway quiets down. Now, Josipovich, in a 2014 paper, reports data that is very interesting. His data shows that the practice of non-dual philosophy can lead to a lessening of this antagonism between the two major pathways. And I was even hinting at that a little in my description, kind of leading into it more. Josipovich found that we can lessen the antagonism between the two, the egocentric and allocentric pathway, and that a functioning can arise in concert with a kind of pathway that's neither egocentric nor allocentric. You see? That's very interesting. Ordinary brain processes, very well verified, that we can function from an egocentric standpoint, and there are pathways for that, and allocentric, which just means other, other-centered, other-centered, and there's pathways for that, trying to see the bird and be more in relationship to the bird and the ecologies and to see even maybe from her perspective. But then there is something that's neither. And Josipovich summarized it kind of nicely. This is a quote. The anti-correlation found between extrinsic and intrinsic systems is not an immutable property of brain organization. In other words, this antagonism between self and other is not an immutable property of brain organization. And then he notes something lovely. This is also a quote. Practicing different forms of meditation can modulate this gross functional organization in profoundly different ways. Duality is a matter of practice. We either practice dualities or we practice something else. And maybe the practicing something else is more in accord with reality itself. He's touching on the practice of magic. That's what that sentence is. In the chapter on attention, in his Principles of Psychology. There's a famous passage that gets quoted a lot from William James. It's an interesting book, Principles of Psychology. It's kind of boring to read the whole thing, but some parts of it are really interesting. And He has this passage where he says, the faculty of voluntarily bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment, character, and will. No one is really 
a master of themselves, so to speak, if they don't have this capacity, says James. And he says an education which would improve this faculty would be the education par excellence, but it is easier to define this ideal than to give practical directions for bringing it about. Of course, James didn't. I mean, he would be thrilled to be now in the midst of this revolution where the philosophical traditions so skilled in teaching exactly what he was talking about that they have come to have such a presence in experimental psychology, in neuroscience, and cognition. We need this ex- education par excellence that he's talking about and a wisdom-based approach to education, to life, to art, to everything. A wisdom-based approach, which is a wisdom, love, and beauty approach, provides the practical directions for bringing it about that James didn't know about. But he's saying this is it. This is our whole, whole character, judgment, will. The, again, the experiments that we were talking about, I think meditators would have a more profound, uh, pronounced effect. And there has been some, um, some evidence of that. I remember once uh, a philosopher of uh, mind came and he was putting a group of us, it was a symposium, little symposium, in a department where I was, and he was putting us through some of these experimental protocols. And I had an experience which he said was not supposed to happen. The expected experimental effect was unable to happen with me because, and I submitted to him, it was because of mind training. I, I said, well, I've trained my mind. My attention doesn't function like a normal person's. It's not because I'm special or I'm powerful. There are people who could, who are Olympic athletes of meditation. But just the fact that we begin to work with our mind, as James is talking about, it's, it is the education par excellence. It will change us. It's not possible to avoid. And magic and attention go together. We could say that a loss the loss of magic comes with the rise of distraction. Isn't that interesting? Because sleight of hand teaches us something about this. The sleight of hand magician distracts our attention in order to trick us. The dominant culture is a culture of sleight of hand used to trick the soul. When we talk about that invisible hand of the marketplace, it's the, it's the sleight of hand hand. That's what's going on there. Bunch of cheap magic. Our iPhone's cheap magic compared to a real deep relationship with wild ecologies of mine with a horse. I wouldn't trade my horse's friends for an iPhone. Never. I don't think of possessing them either. In the same chapter on attention, James also claims the following is nice little line. He says, each of us literally chooses by our ways of attending to things what sort of a universe we shall appear to ourselves to inhabit. And we might revise that because choose, each of us literally chooses. Choose is a term infected with conquest, consciousness. So we could say, by means of our attention, and remember, attention is attending, to be an attendant, to serve, to be a servant of Sophia, 
of wisdom, love, and beauty by means of our attention, our way of engaging, participating, serving, loving. Each of us not only constitutes our world and our cosmos, but we co-discover and co-create it. And that's key because it seems many people who believe in magic or seem to believe in magic in the dominant culture leave precisely this co-creation and co-discovery out of their ethical and critical mind. People seem to think they can create their own reality without asking other sentient beings for any collaboration or input or permission. This is a very dominant culture thing, and it's, again, empowered by the self-help industry in countless ways, all sorts of people who are in that wellness, self-help, coaching, new age, magic, whatever it might be, just, well, no one can stop you from having your dream, living your dream. Really? Did you ask the wolf, the bear, the horse? Because maybe they want to say no. Do they have a right to say that your dream is causing problems in the world? Oh, is that, oh, is that a, you know, like we say, that's an, not an abundance mindset, but what's true abundance? We often don't know. So there's an unconscious human privilege and self-centeredness in some of our thinking, including what might, might sound nice on the surface or might seem like it's magical consciousness. We end up restricting our own ecology of mind through having unskillful beliefs and practices, ways of living. The dominant culture specializes in this sort of fragmented and fragmenting thought. And our captains of industry and finance and high tech and so on, they think they can make the world however they desire. Sentient beings be damned. It's a kind of necromancy in the larger pejorative sense of that term because it does depend on dead bodies, countless sentient beings, and it also produces death. In our present situation, one could forgive the suggestion that the world itself has taken up an analysis of our dualities and our necromancy, since we ourselves don't seem to look deeply enough at them. The world has to analyze it for us. The world says, let me think out your conclusions for you. That might sound like a strange formulation, you know, because we make a division between our thinking and the world. In the dissolution of the conditions of life that we see around us, we find there the dissolution of our version of duality. We find that it cannot hold. If we were not insisting on any dualities, arguably we might not see the conditions of life collapsing around us as a response to that untenable premise. If we could practice and realize good magic, skillful magic, the world would appear sacred, whole, and healthy. Jung said something very relevant here, so it's a line that I really love. He said, Today humanity, as never before, is split into two apparently irreconcilable halves. The psychological rule says that when an inner situation is not made conscious, it happens outside, as fate. The world must perforce act out the conflict and be torn into opposing halves. The world shows us our inner conflict because inner and outer are not a real duality. We have forced the world to act out our incoherence. 
confronting the collapse of the conditions of life outside of us became our fate. People are now born into it. They look around and say, wait, I thought I was going to go to college, get a degree, get a job. I don't have that anymore. Fate, memory, history, an inner situation not fully brought to conscious awareness and analyzed through sustained contemplation and deep practice, mindfulness, remembering. What, re, what we repress remains stuck to us, and we remain stuck in it. We divide it in one way by forcing it out of conscious awareness, but we've not gotten rid of it when we push things into the shadow of our soul and we won't look at them. Magic remains in the shadow for some of us, and our self-centeredness remains significantly in the unconscious for most of us. The dominant culture relies on fear and craving, which means it cultivates addiction, and we all become like an addict who thinks they have their addiction under control, but wakes up one morning to find the house on fire. And we can imagine we might be that addict. You know, we first the house, we still see the house is on fire. We we worry about it. What about our family? Then we realize, oh wait, they left days ago. And we run outside, we get on our cell phone, and we find a voicemail saying, we don't need to come to work ever again. The addiction demands our attention and eventually gets it. Though sometimes we see these events as fate or coincidence. The fire wasn't my addiction, it was the wiring in the lamp was bad, you know. And uh, the company, I got fired, you see, because they got bought out. It's just coincidence. It's not related to the addiction. And in fact, that addiction covers over some deeper symptom that we have tried to medicate with our addiction, the deeper symptom of a bad way of knowing. But that we don't want to see. Definitely, we don't want to see. And in the, in the case of humanity, the home and the family are vast. Our job in this life poorly understood and still, we've done extensive damage to all of it. Why, why did I veer into addiction? Because magic means sobriety. It means a clearer sense of memory. It means the interwovenness of past, present, and future and entrance into the fourth time. Magic means sobering and relaxing the mind so that it becomes a suitable vehicle for the sacred powers and inconceivable causes to function in, through, and as us in accord with wisdom, love, and beauty. Magic means remembering what we are and what the world is. In that sense, magic is a practice of mindfulness. If you have questions, reflections, or stories of magic to share, get in touch through wisdomloveandbeauty.org and we might bring some of them into a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.